Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. I'm John McKee, editor of Messianic Apologetics, one of the co-hosts of the Messianic Walk show, along with Judah Hamego. Hello. This is our second episode. Last time in our inaugural episode, Leaving Messianic Things Part 1, we reviewed Part 1 of Judah's blog post, Responding to No Longer Torah Observant. And so two weeks later, we are continuing. Hopefully, we'll be able to finish up uh, going through uh, Part 2 of his blog, Theological Problems with the Hebrew Roots Movement. Uh, this is certainly a controversial subject matter, but you don't make progress for the kingdom of God unless you cause some controversy. So, <laughs> I suppose that's true. Yeah, so uh, Judah, why don't you tell us a little bit about your blog <laughs> as well as uh, the purpose of this post for those who are not familiar with what we uh, talked about last time. Yeah, so my blog is a blog.judagabriel.com, and it uh, we I just talk about things that uh, messianic folks deal with, uh, and usually it's things that I personally deal with. Uh, I mentioned uh, last uh, episode that you know I help run a congregation uh, for about a decade, and um, I've encountered a lot of issues. So that's the blog in a nutshell. It's dealing with messianic things. I hope it's helpful to folks who are in the messianic faith. This particular post. Uh, is a response to a friend of mine, a Messianic believer, former Messianic believer, uh, who is no longer Torah observant. He posted a really long post saying, hey, this guy named Jonathan, a friend of mine, he says, I'm no longer Torah observant. I'm leaving the um, leadership position in my uh, Hebrew Roots congregation. Here's why. And he did two parts of his post. The first one was, hey, I saw some problems in Hebrew Roots. And this made me question things. And that's what we addressed in the last episode. And then the second part of that post, he said, um, I began to question things and here's how I changed my theology. And that's really what John and I wanted to discuss uh, in this episode is those, those changes to theology, many of them based out of the book of Romans. So that's what we wanted to discuss today. Well, those of you all who know me through Messianic Apologetics and you follow me over the years know that you know, my family is in a very unique position because we have had direct interactions with all of the different sectors of the Messianic movement. And uh, we've been involved since 1995 We've in Messianic Judaism, and then we got more involved later around the turn of the millennium and into the 2000 aughts in what has now become the Hebrew Roots Movement. But in moving from Orlando back to uh, Dallas, North Texas, we got plugged back into Messianic Judaism, where we started all along. And so because of our ministry, by nature, we interact with people from all the different sectors. Uh, but we definitely know that the Hebrew Roots Movement, while very, very big and while very, very popular and it continues to grow, it's it's got some issues regarding its long-term purpose and future. And that's not to say that Messianic Judaism doesn't either. Mm -hmm. Um, We are very much aware right now, uh, we had this discussion before getting started, that some of today's well-known Messianic Jewish leaders are not doing very well Mm -hmm. health-wise. So, you know, God is trying to get our attention in so many different ways this year uh, in 2020. It's not the year we would have wished for 
but hopefully we are paying <laughs> attention and we are going to, okay, let's put away childish things and let's yes. move on toward adulthood. Yes. And last time, uh, I let Judah talk about his blog and I thought it would be great, you know, at around 10 points and we would, you know, two to five minutes on each point. We actually went like 10 minutes on each point or so. Yeah. And yeah. we ended up going for two hours. Two and, hour long podcast. Yes. <laughs> and nobody complained to me about mm-hmm. two hours. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things we know is that a lot of these issues do not get discussed in messianic congregations or fellowships, uh, especially right now, like during the fall high holidays, you know, people are going to be rightly focusing on themes of, you know, your humanity, your, where you stand before God, where you stand before one another. Hopefully we will have a round of prayer for Israel and world peace and, 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 and these kinds of things, but you can't let the deep theological matters go unaddressed indefinitely. Uh, So, Last time, you know, Judah basically, you know, talked about each point from his blog and then I responded to it, which was kind mm-hmm. of fun because mm-hmm. I didn't have to do a lot of work other than just open my <laughs> mouth. Yeah, well, I, I suspect you're going to um, add even more commentary this time because I think you're a little deeper into Romans than I am. And Jonathan uses that as as uh, his basis for many of his theological changes. So I think you're going to have a lot to say, John. <laughs> All right, so we've got 11 theological problems with the Hebrew Roots Movement mm. written by your friend Jonathan. But I would like to stress, as I reviewed this uh, before getting started, these are not limited to one particular person. Indeed, the questions and the issues presented here, anybody can ask. Anybody yeah. can ask. That's right. That's right. A lot of these, I think, um, certainly come up in a messianic believer's life. Uh, oftentimes we're challenged by maybe mainstream Christians about our uh, convictions around the Torah. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's fair to say that these are, these are good questions that need to be addressed and they have a broad application. Yeah. All right. So starting with number one in this part two, Jonathan, prefaces a work in progress, ongoing study needed. Would you explain what he means by that? Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of um, just kind of an intro to his theological objections. He's He says, uh, I'll just quote him here. He says, quote, I will be the first to tell you that I am still studying this out, not to determine if what I believe is true, but rather studying in order to accurately handle the word of truth and to give a defense for the hope that I have. Um, And so he just says before launching into these theological objections that, look, I'm not done. I'm, I'm, it's still a work in progress. I'm still studying. And um, I find that really commendable. I've seen people who have uh, left messianic faith for either Christianity or atheism or um, Orthodox Judaism and um, oftentimes they don't have that humility to recognize that they're still a work in progress. And look, let's be honest, all of us are. I think if you're standing still in your uh, pursuit of God, it's almost like you're going backwards. You know, you're not really standing still. I feel like uh, we have to keep growing. We have to keep pursuing God and keep studying the scriptures uh, for our own spiritual health. Uh, so I, I just wanted to commend, I, I called that out in the blog post just to commend Jonathan to say, ah, I'm glad that he's studying. 
um, what more can we ask for? Um, and part of my response too is, is the hope that, um, he'll consider these things, um, maybe from another angle or, or maybe have a better answer for them, uh, because I felt some of his theological objections, um, I, I, I thought were, um, I'm not going to say easy to rebut, but rather uh, they have some problems of their own. So that's what we wanted to talk about today. I I think it's very appreciable that he said that, you know, I don't have all the answers, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And and there are people who are not, who are in spiritual leadership or positions of teaching who are not humble enough to say hmm. those three words, I don't know. That's right. People want to have all the answers. They want to per- be perceived as experts. Uh, yeah. I think between the two of us, we might have many answers to many questions, sure. but we don't have all the answers. And it is mm-hmm. always something that is a work in progress. Uh, one of the most significant criticisms out there right now of today's messianic movement is that it's no longer a movement, but it's a settlement. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, it's not moving forward like it should be. It, it doesn't allow, you know, for open questioning and open inquiry. Uh, yeah. Not, yeah it, it doesn't allow it for what you see in a lot of Protestantism, much less what you should be seeing from a Jewish angle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of the things I know, and, and I'm not a scientist, but, if you understand the scientific method, you know, people think scientists are very close-minded people and that they're, oh, they're godless and they're heathen and all this. But actually, scientists are some of the most open-minded people you'll ever encounter. They have to be but, willing to change their view on something because, in light of new evidence. Because their view is basically, well, show me the evidence and I will mm-hmm. be, I'll, I'll, I'll change my mind if, if, if the evidence yeah. points this way. Yeah. I remember many, many years ago seeing a, a debate among evangelicals about a particular issue that will remain nameless uh, for our show today. Uh, but uh, one of the people presenting their case basically, you know, threw his Bible in front of the audience and said, this is it. I believe it. And end of story. A That's few years, really, really overly simple. <laughs> right. A few years later, uh, I read and then I watched a video from probably one of the most influential Jewish thinkers in the past 50 years. Okay. And I'm going to get in big trouble for this, but it was Carl Sagan's Cosmos. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, All right. Car- All right. so Carl Sagan, you know, his book Cosmos, um, you know, it's an important book about where he thinks the universe originated and it's influenced a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talks about how, all these different civilizations have some fascination with, you know, the final frontier, you know, mm. or a galaxy far, far away. You know, mm, he, sure. And uh, <laughs> I mean, all these civilizations, you know, Judaism, Mesopotamia, Egypt, the Greeks and the Romans, even as far into the Protestant Reformation where you have, uh, you know, different leaders like Queen Elizabeth who has court astrologers. Mm. But but anyway, anyway, so so he said that, Look, I personally today don't know if there's a God or there's a supreme intelligence, but I'm open to it. Mm, he never okay. said, I am completely against the existence of a God uh, in control of everything. Interesting. And, so he's agnostic then, really. He was agnostic. Um, yeah. And the, at the end, I think, I don't know. But, yeah. uh, but he basically came across as agnostic. But he was, he was like, look, show me the evidence and I will be convinced. Mm-hmm. But for so many of us, 
whether it's in the Messianic movement, Hebrew Roots movement, Torah movement, what, this sphere of influence, there is a closed-mindedness on a lot of people. They yeah, in fact, they think that they're open-minded, but in fact, they're very closed-minded and they won't allow certain subjects to be addressed. And, and really right. looking through this list, this is not even the tip of the iceberg. I know, I know. It can this go is much like, deeper indeed. You know, this is T-ball stuff. <laughs> this is, this is yeah. ball stuff. Yeah, and yet Jonathan mentions that, and this touches on what you said. He says um, that he was discouraged from questioning some of these things, um, and that that's un, an unfortunate testament to some of the rigidness that we're experiencing, as you mentioned. Right. So, and it's and it's and it's everywhere. You know, it's not mm. just in Hebrew roots; it's in Messianic Judaism Fair as enough. well. Okay. Yeah. And and this is this is not something that can continue indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So, and one of the things that I, that I think is 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 a resultant of these underlying uh, problems is because of COVID nineteen and the lockdowns and everything else, uh, a whole new series of podcasts and r- radio programs and all this kind of stuff has um, just exploded uh, mm-hmm. with labels like Messianic and Hebrew Roots and. You know, some of these are going to be better than others, but hopefully these topics are going to get out there on the table. And, you know, some of the older, and I'm not trying to put down all baby boomers, but some of the older baby boomers, well, we just don't go there. We just don't talk about that. Hopefully some of these things will get out there for discussion and dissemination. Yes. All right. So the second point uh, from your blog, uh, God doesn't change, and Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. That uh, yeah. is very uh, intriguing to me. Yeah, the first one is is a, something that I've put a lot of thought into and had some changing views on myself, uh, that God doesn't change. Uh, we'll discuss that more in a moment. Um, the second one, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Jonathan says, oh, you know, on these two points uh, – I've, I've changed my view. He says that God doesn't change. For that one, he says, I've often heard in my Hebrew Roots congregation and throughout the movement, people would say, look, God doesn't change. Therefore, the Torah is still um, applicable to today um, and to all of God's people. These are God's standards at this point in time. Therefore, since God doesn't change, these are still God's standards for today. And he says that he's had some changing views on that point. Um, I have two, but maybe not in the same way that Jonathan does. I'll I'll discuss more in a moment. The second one that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, he's referring to Matthew 5 in uh, the the fundamentals of the faith, Sermon on the Mount. Um, Yeshua says, uh, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, not to abolish, but to fulfill. And anyone who who teaches against the Torah will be called least and, and, and so on. So Jonathan says, hey, this is a this is a big point in the messianic movement, and I've had some a change of view on what that means that Jesus didn't come to abolish the, the Torah. Now just to pause for a minute, in the rest of Jonathan's theological objections, he addresses the first one, God doesn't change, but he doesn't discuss the second one, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. So I don't address that more in the post other than to say, I think Matthew 5 still presents a problem for anti-Torah Christians or, or Christians who, who see the law as, um, 
useless or, or not at all relevant to today. I think Matthew 5 does present a problem, uh, not only because it upholds the Torah, but also because it encourages uh, from Messiah's own mouth that we should do good works. Uh, he says, let your let your uh, light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify God in heaven, you know, from the mouth of Messiah. So I, I still, my only comment on, on Matthew 5, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, is simply, I believe still it's a problem for anti-law Christians uh, because it's in the fundamentals of the faith sermon and it's from Messiah's own mouth. I, I feel it's, um, it's, a, it's a big point for the messianic movement. Um, as far as the first one, God doesn't change. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, John, but um, one of the things that I've evolved on a little bit is how do we p- apply the Torah to today? This has been a, an area that I thought was clear to me when I was younger, and it's I realized, no, it's not so clear. And the reason is, is the Torah was given to ancient people, right? Like God gives us commandments about, uh, you know, having a fence on a roof. Okay, that made sense 3,500 years ago. It doesn't make sense today in the West in the 21st century. Uh, things like that where we have to take ancient commandments, commandments given to an ancient people, and figure out how to apply them today. Jonathan comes away saying, ah, that just means that it doesn't apply at all today. Or, you know, these, these commandments were, were for a different time, and so they're not for today. My my understand my um, um, conclusion of, of kind of reevaluating that over the last few years is we have to figure out we have to wrestle with how to apply them. I think it does a disservice to the Bible if we just discard them. So even weird commandments like building a fence on your roof, I think there is a principle that can still be applied today. Um, one principle might be, uh, you know, the things I own, um, I, I should be concerned with the safety of the things I own so that other people don't get injured. Um, that might mean buying a certain kind of car or having a, a, a net on my trampoline in the backyard. There's many ways it could be applied. And I think to be able to wrestle with that and say, how can we apply that today? That's my conclusion, whereas Jonathan's conclusion is, um, hey, these things were just given for a different time, so they're not relevant today. So I would be curious, John, to hear your thoughts on that first one. God doesn't change. Messianic Hebrew roots folks, pro-Torah folks, have used that to say that the Torah is still totally relevant, as relevant as it was back then. It's still relevant today. What is your thought on that God doesn't change and its, and its relation to the Torah? Yes, I have had to field this question many, many, many times. Mm, mm, and I've gotten in fights with people over this. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, you know, and I, I, I would say, and I've even broken off communication with people. Oh, gosh. It's that bad. Okay. No, um, but, you know, <laughs> okay. but, uh, I don't, the, the one statement about God doesn't change is that it concerns God's immutable character and attributes. Mm. especially in contrast to human beings. You know, human beings are not omniscient, we're not omnipresent, and most importantly, we don't know what goes on in the hearts and minds of other people. We like to think we True. do, but we don't. Mm. So, you know, I, I think it's very important that we, that we qualify what God not changing involves. 
Fair you enough. Know? And I and I think it and I think it very much concerns God's immutable character and attributes. Mm-hmm. Now, along with that, uh, this whole issue of okay, Yeshua came to fulfill, not abolish the Torah. Obviously, it means that the books of Moses cannot just be haphazardly disregarded. They have yes. something to inform Messiah followers about. Yes. And yes, we're not debating the validity or relevance of the Torah. We tend hmm. to debate its application and implementation yes. in modern and postmodern times. Mm-hmm. And so one of the big debates, and, and actually this is where turning to the Jewish tradition can be useful. Um, and without getting so overwhelmed with all the different things like Sabbath and kosher regulations, but just recognizing that the Jewish rabbis are not stupid. They, <laughs> they know that you, yeah. that many of these commandments, like instructions regarding agriculture or transportation, they either can only be followed in the land of Israel or that they were given to a certain level of technology and economy. Look yes. at all of the regulations concerning commerce. Uh, the ancient Israelites did not have a banking system as mm. the Greeks and the Romans would later have, much mm. less what we have today. And, of course, what's, yes. what's the common accusation to Jews in our history? Well, they control all the money. And right. uh, you know, so surely members of the Jewish community, without anything regarding Yeshua, have recognized that there have been some alterations and adaptations they have to be implemented if we're to at least honor the intention and the spirit of certain instructions and and what's, yeah, and what's, so, important, to, and what's so important is even in even in historical protestant theology you know people have turned to the torah they turned to different narratives they turned to different sets of instructions and they would say look god was concerned with farmers god was concerned with people in business God was concerned with transportation. Now, we are here in North America. We're building a railroad across the frontier. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. we are, you know, people are, you know, planting. They are, you know, they're they're on a cattle drive. You know, what are we, how, how, what does the Bible inform us about God's intention with what's happening today? You know, so much of, you know, looking to, you know, how God was interacting with the ancient Israelites in their circumstances and trying to transfer principles and points for today is yeah. vital because all too often what I have experienced in the Messianic movement is rather than saying, okay, God's concerned with agriculture, he's concerned with commerce, he's concerned with business, he's concerned with transportation, all these things that, okay, technology has changed the venue, but the, uh, the thing, the, they're, they're still, you know, there's, there's still the, the subject matter rather than saying, okay, what can we learn? People like to spiritualize this stuff. Mm, you know, people, people will say, well, um, this describes my relationship with Yeshua. Now, you know, mm. I'm going to lie fallow or, or whatever mm. it is. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know what you've just done without really knowing it. You've, you've just taken a fourth century replacement theology hermeneutic and you've applied it to the Torah you've spiritualized it and mm. and actually what I think God wants us to do is when you are getting ready to plant that garden in your backyard uh you know is there anything you can learn from the scriptures mm. you know or you know because God there's, is there's some tangible way God to apply it. is yeah. concerned about about this yeah and, yeah Yep. You know, when you get on that airplane, 
okay, the big joke is, well, lo, I am with you, so I'm not going to get on the airplane. <laughs> but, but no, but still. I haven't heard that one. That's great. <laughs> but, but God is concerned about your safety when you are being, uh, you know, when you're going from point A to point B. Certainly, mm-hmm. uh, we know from this, from the account of Jonah that sea travelers, God is concerned about sea travelers, you know, <laughs> and, uh, yes. and, and I think that, I think that the answer is, I think so many people are looking for this esoteric or hidden answer that they, they're, they're just not satisfied with the more obvious answer. God takes an interest in these different human matters. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and God's immutable character hasn't changed, but technology and economy has developed. Absolutely. And I think that goes towards the reality that so many of the commandments of given in the Torah have to do with agriculture because so many people dealt with agriculture. It was central to the people of Israel. Even the feasts are, are based around agriculture. It's not that agriculture is unimportant today, of course not, but... Something like 2%, 1% of the U.S. population actually works in agriculture anymore. And so technology has really shifted uh, our just our whole culture, the way we do things. And it's raised new questions about how can we apply the commandments from ancient times to today. Um, a couple examples might be, you know, there's a commandment against starting a fire on Shabbat in the Torah. Well... Uh, if taken to its maybe extreme end, if you're very rigid in that interpretation, you might just say, well, we can't even start a spark. Therefore, we can't start a car. Therefore, we can't turn on the lights. And indeed, in some Orthodox communities, that's exactly what they do. Uh, they will not. I, I can tell. I, I remember driving in Israel over to my brother's house uh, a few years back. And it was getting close to Shabbat. The sun was still clearly in the sky, but it was getting dark. Uh, it was going down, and um, I'm driving through this ultra-Orthodox neighborhood, and I thought, oh, yikes, people are looking at me bad because it's almost Shabbat and I'm driving. You know, this is so, so this is an example of technology. We have to figure out how to apply the old commandments to today, and a lot of people just don't think about it. You know, when people say, no, it's it's I know how to apply it. I read the Bible. I just know how to apply it. That's they haven't thought deeply about it. I don't know what else to say. Like they're, they're got a very, a superficial view perhaps, or maybe just an entry level view of, of things and haven't dug quite deep uh, into it. Um, so yeah, you know, I think this is the, the, the thing we've got to do. And I think it's what we're doing with Jonathan here is wrestling with some of these issues that he raises that, Hey, is the Torah just for ancient times? And does it have anything to say, in a tangible way today, not just spiritually, but can it apply to our lives today? These are these are things we've got to wrestle with. Well, obviously, we do believe as Messianic believers that Yeshua's interpretation and application is definitive. But you know, Yeshua mm-hmm. didn't talk about some of these things involving modern technology and convenience. Yeah, and yeah. this is yeah. and in my at least in my case. Uh, this this is where I look to, in particular, some of the clashes that American Judaism uh, went through, uh, particularly at the turn of the last century. Mm. Uh, and if you know anything about American Judaism, you know that uh, in the the mid 1800s, you know, the first major waves of Jewish immigrants, particularly from Germany, came mm, over, mm, and mm. these people were very well educated. They tended to be very well off. They were very modern people. 
and they wanted to assimilate into American society. Uh, and, and this is why you see some synagogues that look no different than a Protestant church. And while you see different rabbis, and it's like, it's a rabbi. Look, he's dressed like my pastor. Um, and they wore <laughs> like, the, okay. and they wore the clerical robes and they even had in some of their synagogues, uh, uh you know, pipe organs and everything. They really wanted yeah. to assimilate and, and then in the late 1800s and into the 1900s, that's when the, that's when the huge waves of Jewish immigrants came from mainly the Russian Empire. And these yeah. people were not, had not been emancipated like those in, in Germany and Central the Europe. And then, uh, yeah. they were a restricted minority. They couldn't own a lot of property. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's basically the fiddler on the roof. <laughs> and, yeah, that, yeah. and, and, uh, they had to turn to their religious faith and Torah and Talmud, uh, for meaning in their lives. They couldn't, they mm-hmm. couldn't go to university. So they come mm-hmm. to America and, and, you know, we would look at them and we would say, oh, those are Orthodox Jews. Mm-hmm. They, they practice Orthodox Judaism. They would look at themselves and they would say, well, we just practice Judaism. But what mm-hmm. a lot of people are unaware of is that the Jews from Germany and then the Jews from Russia mainly, they had huge conflicts among themselves uh, because uh, – One would like, imagine. Right. The Jews from Germany, particularly with the Pittsburgh platform of 1885, well, we don't have to do kosher. You know, that's Levitical law. It doesn't teach anything about, about what it means to be a modern person. You know, yeah. this, is, this is restricting, you know, the philosophy of Judaism making an impact on the culture around us. Yeah. Um, and then eventually what happened was, is that as, you know, this, this German and, and Russian thing, as, as, as things evened out and as, as these communities started to intermarry, you saw, uh, yes, you saw, you know, a huge number of, you know, Jews from Russian extraction become, you know, members of the reformed, you know, reform movement. Uh, but then you saw more of a third way emerge and in particular with conservative Judaism, uh, after the Second World War and people, uh, Jewish, uh, families started moving out to the suburbs, uh, they ruled, the, the conservative movement ruled, look, if we can't tell our synagogue members that they can drive on Shabbat to the synagogue, we will lose them to Christianity. Wow. Okay. So that is what yeah. they, so that was their logic. Their logic was, look, <laughs> if, if they can't, I mean, we don't want them, you know, just driving haphazardly, but if they, mm-hmm. if we don't let them drive to the synagogue on Shabbat, we will lose them and they will totally assimilate. Wow. Uh, and so from that, uh, there's this pragmatism that, that has emerged. And, and I think that particularly in the, in, in the sectors that, of this messianic Hebrew roots thing that are more quote unquote Torah observance. There's not the pragmatic reality like, well, what if, if, what if there is an emergency and you mm-hmm. have to go into Microsoft on Shabbat because if not Microsoft, mm-hmm. you know, might go out of business. I mean, that's not going to happen, but, sure. uh, but, but, those, but those kinds of things do happen with, with, you know, with people. Uh, yeah. We, yeah. We Special people, circumstances. We yes. all know people who are in the military. We all know people who are in law enforcement and, and the fire and, 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 in, and in medicine. So they have to work on Shabbat in order to save life. But yes. you know, so much of this is we don't have the discussion of, well, what about, you know, real life circumstances on the ground. And is God big enough to forgive us? Of course he is. He knows mm-hmm. that, you know, that the, that the world in which we live isn't perfect. And we're not trying to get around commandments. We're trying to honor them. But what if something happens? 
Mm-hmm. And and that is not a discussion I see uh, frequented that much. Yeah, I think there's there's the two sides of this. You know, there's maybe from the Christian world, there's this idea that, look, we can just uh, do away with the Toros for a different time. You know, maybe there's some nice sermons that could be taught here and there from it, but by and large, it's not very relevant for today. On the other side, there's the Torah observance that I think you're touching on, John, which is this kind of rigid Torah observance, maybe um, to an unhealthy level. You mentioned how in the uh, mid-19th century, Reformed Judaism had said, okay, we're, we're done with kosher. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people don't realize uh, Reformed Judaism also they, they looked at um, the Siddur, the prayer book of Judaism, and said, hey, all these prayers are about the land of Israel, Zion, Jerusalem, um, the temple. Well, these things obviously aren't going to happen, uh, so let's just yank these prayers from the prayer book. Uh, that's, I think, kind of a similar influence. Christianity is is kind of pulling a lot of messianics in, in that it, it throws out a lot of the... the um, literal meaning of the scriptures. So it's possible to go too far one way, right? That And that way is, look, um, everything is spiritualized. Um, everything just turns into a principle, and it has nothing to inform us about everyday life, um, our practical walk with the Lord. I think that's gone too far. Um, and to its credit, I suppose, Reform Judaism, after the state of Israel was founded some hundred years later, uh, they added back prayers that were about the land of Israel, Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, uh, to their credit. Um, but the other direction, too, is, I, I, I think, wrong. We can go too far in the other way where, as you mentioned, things become too rigid, uh, where there isn't an allowance for the realities of life. You mentioned, I, I wasn't aware of that, that conservative Judaism had said, oh, okay, we're going to lose Jews to Christianity if we don't allow them to drive on Shabbat. <laughs> that's, that's amusing. Uh, but to their credit, that's giving uh, some maybe practical uh, interpretation, some practical aspect of it, precedence over the maybe the letter of the law. So yeah, these these things we got to wrestle with. Um, and certainly in both Judaism and Christianity, we've seen kind of things go both ways. Uh, so it, it's a difficult matter. I'm glad Jonathan raised these questions. You know, I, that's why I'm glad we could talk about this on the podcast, John. These are good questions. You you, you mentioned that, you know, they're, they're T-ball level, maybe they're entry-level stuff for a lot of messy eyes. Yeah, there's more questions we could have, but these need to be addressed uh, and need to be wrestled with. And I think people who say it's so simple, oh, it's clearly, I read the Bible and it's clearly this way. It's like, ah, you haven't read deep enough or you haven't studied. I don't know. Maybe you're just skimming the text or maybe you're just speaking out of your own biases but these things are difficult issues so i'm glad we can talk about them today right and i stress before going on to point three yes we're getting some things out there on the table and all we can do is offer people a framework for understanding that's all we can do we can't now i recognize that so many of these different matters have not been discussed and you know in my experience in, and I'm not trying to be mean, but in my mm-hmm. experience in Messianic Judaism, there's really not a huge desire to want to get into some of the, well, how do we do this instruction and how, and what do we do here? Mm-hmm. And what do we do there? It's basically love God and love neighbor. And for a lot of people, things like Shabbat and the festivals, that's cultural or that's for enrichment mm-hmm. in Messianic faith. And uh, mm-hmm. they're great. Whereas in the Hebrew roots movement, people actually do want to be taught. 
unfortunately, legalism, rigidity, and this desire to not want to get into, okay, what do we do with this and what do we do with that? And what is the history of interpretation? How do we fairly implement these things? That tends to be absent. And and uh, that's why we have a lot of, of, of the people who end up questioning Yeshua they mm-hmm. or they go in or they go in all kinds of directions uh i think one of the worst ones is is the promotion of polygamy um, yeah yes uh, but okay so point number 3 and we'll have to accelerate our speed a little bit um, <laughs> okay yeah we're going back for two or even 3 hours this time <laughs> <laughs> romans answers whether gentiles should keep torah so why don't you briefly summarize uh, jonathan's uh, points there yeah, so he, he, in almost the rest of this post, for all of these objections, nearly all of them are based out of Romans. And he says, Romans in Romans, Paul is answering the question of whether Gentiles should keep Torah. Uh, and I'll just give a quick quote here. He says, the arguments in the community at Rome centered around the Mosaic law and if Gentiles were expected to obey the more cultural aspects of it, such as circumcision, kosher, and the feasts. And he, he continues, Jonathan continues, having a unified community would make it easier for Paul to use Rome as a base for his missionary journey to Spain. So as Jonathan sees it, uh, Romans answers this question of whether Jews, uh, excuse me, whether non-Jews should keep the Torah. Um, Jonathan doesn't clarify if he believes Jews should or not. He just is saying that Gentiles shouldn't. That's his reading of, of Romans. Um, so a little bit of context here. My, my response to Jonathan in this particular one is, first, Paul does uh, chide both Jews and Gentiles in Romans for not keeping the Torah. Jonathan will even acknowledge this later in the post. It's just that Jonathan will say, well, when Paul chides the non-Jews for not keeping the Torah, he's chiding them for not keeping the moral Torah, the moral law, and not the, as Jonathan deems them, cultural aspects of the Torah, such as circumcision, kosher, and the feast. And I, I, I give some examples here where I say, look, even in the beginning of Romans, uh, Romans chapter one, at the end of chapter one, Paul comes out swinging against the wicked generation. And perhaps most famously in this, uh, in these paragraphs, Paul says, uh, the wicked generation is practicing homosexuality. Uh, and he says, God gives them over, uh, because, uh, because of their sin, he just gives them over to the lusts of their own flesh. He basically says, uh, They'll, they'll be deluded in their own sin and men will lust for other men and women for women and they'll receive their due punishment. I, I mentioned to Jonathan out of that, that is Paul saying the wicked generation is breaking the Torah because those uh, sexual sins that Paul raises are sins that, that are forbidden in the Torah. Jonathan's response later is simply going to be, well, that's just the moral Torah. And I want to talk about that a little more later as, as Jonathan develops this a little bit. But that's my response. I, I said, look, Paul does actually chide both Jews and Gentiles in Romans, especially in the opening chapters. Uh, Romans 2 is, is a great example um, where he is chiding. He's saying, look, you're saying you're without sin, but you are sinning. And 
Um, even these Jews who are Torah observant, while they're relying on the Torah for their righteousness, um, they're actually sinning. They're hypocrites. They're saying they're righteous. They're saying they're Torah observant. They're actually sinning. Um, and then he says, and the Gentiles who are doing the works of the law, even though they didn't have the law, they, they don't have the law, they weren't taught the law growing up, that if they are doing the works of the law, that those people are more righteous than even the Torah-observant Jews. So I, I just said to Jonathan, that's uh, that's an example of where Paul um, does rebuke people for sinning and breaking the Torah. Paul also says, I think it's in Romans 7, where he says, I wouldn't have known that coveting is sin if it wasn't for the Torah telling me you shall not covet. And again, Jonathan interprets that to say, well, that's just the moral law, but I have objections to that too. So what, what's your take there, John, uh, about, about Paul says he does not, uh, he does not condemn non-Jews for breaking the law in Romans. Well, one of the things I think we really have to move beyond is mm. because so many people are there, they read Romans principally as a theological treatise, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and that, is, that is a tradition that goes back to Luther and Calvin. They oh. don't principally read Romans as a letter written to an ancient group of Messiah followers. Fair okay. enough. And, yes, when you, okay. and when you read Romans as principally an ancient group of Messiah followers, and these are some of their problems, then some orientations to different passages begin to change. Okay. Now, Romans is is widely a letter of promotion regarding, okay, you know, Paul is going to use Rome as a base of operations to conduct ministry operations in the Western Roman Empire, like he used Ephesus or Antioch mm-hmm. for the Eastern Roman Empire. He doesn't know the Romans that that well. He's pro- mm-hmm. he's saying, you know, this is this is what I teach, this is what I this is what I'm about. Yes. And I think the running joke uh, among Romans examiners is uh, at the end of Romans, Phoebe is given the letter to the Romans, and she, of course, that raises many other questions, but (laughs) she has to take the letter to the Romans, and presumably Phoebe had some explanations regarding some of these difficult passages. Mm. And I remember, well, I I remember uh, two uh, New Testament instructors saying, uh, at seminary, wouldn't we like to have Phoebe's notes? Where are yes. her notes? <laughs> yes, we would. <laughs> it would yes. save us a lot of, uh, but, uh, you know, one of the things you have to remember is, you know, Paul criticizing groups of people on their behavior, right? They, they steal, they fornicate, mm-hmm. they lust, they covet. That is in the same tradition as the prophets of Israel. When ah. the prophets of Israel went after the people of Israel, uh, what, are, what does, what do the prophets of Israel go after? You're committing idolatry and child sacrifice. Those tend to be the two major things that get hit. Uh, some of these other matters like what people are eating, uh, different religious days, they're not given the same uh, priority, maybe because these are just so obvious and these are imbued upon the human conscious. Uh, you know, the instruction of, of, of Romans 1 deals with against nature. So it's something that's mm. almost to mm. be hardwired mm. into the human 
uh, brain, the human psyche, who we are. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I think those are some things that can just get easily overlooked. Now, I think I yeah. do think that your friend Jonathan, this might be fast forwarding a, a little bit, okay. probably is falling for some more customary interpretations of Romans chapter eleven. I'm sorry, Romans chapter fourteen, uh, which ah. which are which are frequently viewed as well. Paul thinks that sacred days and what you eat really don't matter. Uh, mm. And I think that there are some alternatives to that when, but you know, this is a, this is, yes. a, we're not talking about Romans specifically here uh, today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are just some, some, some of my responses to this off, off, off the cuff. Uh, you know, Sounds listening. good. If I can add something there too, you know, maybe for our next episode, we can talk about some of these, issues in Romans like Romans 14 and about eating and drinking and celebrating days. Uh, with regards to your point, John, about um, we have to remember that Paul is writing to a particular community dealing with a set of problems. I mentioned that too to Jonathan that Jonathan says, well, the point of Romans is, is, is really centered around are the Gentiles to keep Mosaic law? And my response was, I don't think so. I think Paul is addressing issues that arose because of the expulsion of Jews by Claudius um, some years prior to the writing of that letter. These Jews then returned to Rome, and there were issues that arose between Jews and Gentiles. I think that can include some Torah issues, um, some matters of, of community, as, as Jonathan mentions. But I don't think the point of the letter is, should... Gentiles follow the Mosaic law. In my mind, that's not what Paul is is dealing with primarily. Well, I know in the Messianic community, I think our view of Romans is much more influenced by uh, Paul's discussions in chapters nine, ten, and eleven. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and what and how do we respond to this wide scale Jewish dismissal of Yeshua as Messiah? Yeah. Yes, and I think that's that's really the bigger issue in Romans, and and one of the things we know, looking at a history of interpretation of Romans, because in the Messianic world, you know, these are the passages people turn to. You know, how do we see Jewish people come to faith in Yeshua? What do we? How do we provoke Jews to jealousy? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we be vessels of mercy and grace and yes. and love if we're not Jewish? How do we do this? Uh, whereas, in a history of Romans interpretation. Uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11 have been approached as an abstract philosophy. And this is where we get a lot of Calvinistic predestination from. Yeah. Yes, and it's yes, like, yes. And, and, and in my view, and there'd be people who disagree, uh, that is something that has been uh, superimposed onto the text by people who promote replacement theology. They're yes. not looking at the circumstances in Rome. They're looking at Romans principally as a theological treatise mm. rather than a letter written to ancient believers. Yeah, I, I agree 100% about that kind of superimposing uh, predestination on on uh, in Romans, particular 9, I think it's 9 and 10, I think it is, uh, when maybe the bigger message there is, um, okay, did God fail because Israel rejected Yeshua? Uh, so yeah, I, I'm with you 100% there. And if I can add something to, uh, to for all of our listeners, if you're interested in in the Book of Romans and getting maybe a deeper understanding than you might have now, 
John has written an awesome book about this, engages with a lot of scholarship. I actually have my, my well-worn copy right here, <laughs> uh, Romans for the Practical Messianic. I use this book uh, to teach my congregation for quite a long time on Romans um, and gives a, a good deep dive. So if, if folks listening to this are interested in, hey, how does Romans speak to us as Messianic believers? Uh, Romans for the Practical Messianic is a great book, great resource to have. Yes, and there will be a link in the description uh, to this. Yes, and also John didn't pay me to say that. That's that's honest to God, my my heart in the matter there. <laughs> so moving on to point four, and yes. we may have already covered some of this in, in your previous discussion. Um, Paul yeah. doesn't correct Gentiles for breaking the Torah. And, yeah. and, and it would seem to me that Jonathan, although he's not alone, they are considering Torah to be more than just, you know, like the Ten Commandments, but, but you know, things that are much more Levitical or ritual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Jonathan has certainly subscribed to the idea that um, we can categorize the Torah into different buckets, things like uh, ceremonial law versus moral law, and then certain buckets are no longer relevant for today. Um, there may be some truth about, you know, hey, can we categorize the commandments into different buckets? But I, I reject the idea that, oh, because it happens to be categorized into this modern bucket that we call um, ceremonial, that we can just discard it and it doesn't speak to us today. So that's maybe where we differ. Uh, John says for this one, Paul doesn't correct Gentiles for breaking the Torah, it kind of flows from his previous point. He says, quote, it is worth observing that in his letter, Paul never corrects Gentiles for not following the Mosaic law. Instead, he urges unity. If the aspects of the Mosaic law were a sin issue for the church, why would Paul not call it out? He certainly had no compunction about calling people out when it was necessary, unquote. So his his stance, again, is, is kind of just narrowing here, saying, look, uh, we should see Paul saying, hey, you Romans, why aren't you celebrating Passover? Or why aren't you uh, eating kosher or things or, or, or keeping Shabbat? You know, these these are the things that I think Jonathan has kind of shifted on. Um, I mentioned earlier, I, I, I don't believe that I, I don't agree with Jonathan's claim that Paul doesn't correct Gentiles for not following the Torah. He does. Um, Jonathan would even agree with that. He would just say, oh, well, he corrects them for not following the moral Torah. Um, with regards to this, I, yeah, I mentioned the, the wicked generation. The problem I have, though, with this moral law is, and I'd be curious, honestly, John, what your view is on this, because my my issue with saying, well, it's just the moral law he wants the, the Gentile Romans to follow. The problem is, is it's ill-defined. The moral law is, is ill-defined, meaning we can easily move commandments in and out of moral law. An example of this, there are liberal Jewish and Christian theologians who will argue that the homosexuality, the, um, the prohibition on homosexuality that Paul reiterates in Romans 1, that that was ritual, not moral. And because it's ritual, it can be discarded for today. People will say, Oh, you know, that was, that was, um, had to do with idolatry, had to do with temple prostitution. Um, it doesn't describe the modern monogamous same-sex relationships that, 
that we have today. And so we can just, we can discard those things. So uh, that's my objection to many of Jonathan's um, positions here is he keeps relying on the moral law, but the moral law is ill-defined. Um, you could, you could push further. You could say, well, what about the 10 commandments? Are those, those are clearly moral law. But then you think, oh, wait a minute. One of the Ten Commandments is about Shabbat. Is that moral? And if that's moral, then why aren't the other feasts of the Lord also moral laws? So it just is very fuzzy to me. Um, maybe, maybe it's because I'm not a trained, uh, theologian, but it seems to me that this moral law is ill-defined. And because it's ill-defined, um, anything from the Torah can be thrown out by just merely changing its categorization. Well, it's very important that you bring that up because I actually was raised in a theological tradition, which promoted the belief that uh, God, the commandments of God's Torah were to be subdivided between moral, civil, and ceremonial. That is something Mm -hmm. which goes back to John Calvin. Mm -hmm. It affected Presbyterianism with John Knox uh, and then John Wesley with the Methodist movement just kind of, you know, continued in that wake. Uh, and so one of the good things about that theology, certainly up until the mid 20th century, was that it did believe that a substantial part of God's commandments in the Torah remained relevant for his people. So the moral would, ones, yeah. So you would not be able to make the argument, well, we need to remove all 10 commandments monuments because the belief is that these are things that God's people have to follow. And yes, along with that was the idea that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday mm. uh, and things like that. But if you're looking at the glasses half full, there are things you can benefit from. Now, personally, yeah. I am more because, you know, some of these early Reformation figures, they were not informed from Judaism. If they were, uh, some of the ways that, uh, Jewish interpreters have classified the 613 commandments more or less along the lines of the order of the, the orders of the Mishnah. Mm. That's what you would probably end up something more like that, that, and there've been different ways that Jewish rabbis have classified the commandments. You know, these are about sexuality. These are about agriculture. These are about commerce, that kind of thing. That's that, that I think is more organic, but you know, this whole argument that, uh, you know, only moral commandments are to be followed. Today, it does demonstrate that there's a slippery slope to that. And yeah. that, well, you got people wanting to redefine what, what moral is. <laughs> what, right. uh, you know, like, like I remember, uh, when I took Romans exegesis, we had to do three weeks on chapter one because of the whole homosexual mm. issue. Wow. And you, yeah. and you presented one alternative that is out there. Actually, yep. the alternative that, that, that you more frequently encounter is, well, in, in Romans one, it's, it's not, you know, committed same sex, you know, one right. man and one woman. It's rather pedestry, which is an older man with a younger yeah. boy that's right. condemned. And you're like, okay. Um, I mean, that's a problem. I'm not going to deny that. And sure. that was affluent in the Roman empire. Mm-hmm. But then, right. you know, you, then you go back, well, what about Leviticus 18? I mean, is that, oh, well, that's just, uh, you know, temple prostitution and, and, mm. and then, and then what about Sodom and Gomorrah here? And mm. then that quickly becomes, well, that's not, I mean, you know, that, that has nothing to do with that. And so, and so you do see some people trying to reinvent what the problem is. 
Yes. And, and indeed, you know, that, you know, the danger of any smart interpreter of Holy Scripture is you can reinvent what certain quote unquote sins are. And I know, every, I know. You see, everyone is, everyone could be accused, well, you're redefining what the problem is in Romans mm, or you're redefining mm. what the issue is here. Mm. Um, I mean, that's, that, that's been lodged at many, I mean, look, look at how many interpreters up until 1948 would have spiritualized all these prophecies of Israel's restoration. Oh, that's just the bounty that the right. church has. And now it's like, oh my goodness, we've got <laughs> Israel in the middle. We east. messed up. Yeah. Yeah. And today, I mean, not to, not to, uh, interject current events into it too much, mm-hmm. but, you know, so many people have been operating on the mentality that, well, Israel and the Palestinians are going to make peace, and then all these other countries in the Middle East will come on board with peace. And what you see happening is actually the reverse. You mm. see United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, probably right. Oman. I mean, even today, the news are, the, the newscasters are saying, well, Saudi Arabia, I mean, they're having talks with that. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. that's the big one. You know, yeah. that that's that's the big one. And who's to say that uh, based on interpretations of prophecy, you're not going to see some kind of, you know, genuine peace between these countries emerge. And then, of course, somebody from the West is going to, well, you know, I'm your Messiah now, and they're going to impose something. I mean, we just don't know. We don't know. But, uh, but yeah, we have to be very, very careful. And, you know, some of the most important verses for people, even people of the moral law perspective, uh, are actually... Romans 8, 1 to 4, uh, and particularly verse 4, in yeah. order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, yes, we yes. do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And I can, I mean, I can, ra- I mean, I can't tell you how many commentators will say that is Paul's way of invoking the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. He's talking about how God's instruction is to be written on the heart and the mind. And you know, in this case, your friend is reacting to a lot of the bad behavior that he has seen in the Hebrew Roots movement, where you don't tend to see a lot of emphasis on this is supposed to be a work of the Holy Spirit and in, 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 in performing some of these things like Shabbat and the festivals and even a kosher style of eating. We're supposed to be living more like Yeshua, yes, yes, growing in yeah. God's grace and God's mercy. No, instead... Um, you know, when certain things come up, like, uh, you know, you might come uh, from having visited your relatives uh, when you're out of town and, uh, you know, don't tell them that you were accidentally served, you know, ba- uh, mm. you know, green beans and there was bacon in them. You know, don't ask, mm. don't tell. Um, because, <laughs> I mean, these people, if if you tell somebody something like that and it's, a, and it's something you didn't intend, that is worse than, oh, wait a second, his browsing history was discovered and you're not going to believe uh, how many websites had XXX associated with them. In other I mean, words, yeah, we've, we've majored on some of the minor issues. Yeah, agreed, agreed, man. And, uh, I mean... So much of this could have been prevented if we had more discussions in the 2000 aughts and we were just mm. fairer. Uh, but I don't think hope is lost. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So again, you know, we're trying to put some things out there. We're using your blog, uh, responding to no longer Torah observant as a springboard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some of these discussions, uh, they've remained, uh, they've, they've, we've waited too long. Uh, agreed. And if I can add one last thing, I'll make this quick, uh, to Jonathan's point. I think what Jonathan's really looking for is why in Romans do we not see 
Roman, hey, Roman believers, why are you not keeping kosher? Why are you not celebrating Passover? Things like that. Or, or rebuking them for not doing those things. That's what Jonathan's looking for. And I said, why isn't an explicit uh, uh, thing like that listed in, in Romans? And my answer is Jonathan's own answer. He, he later says uh, in his post that the kingdom of God, he's quoting Romans, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. And I said, I think with the Roman believers, they were dealing with more serious issues than whether they were keeping Passover. They were dealing with sexual immorality. They were dealing with uh, issues of idolatry. They were dealing with uh, master-slave relationships, things of that nature. And so Paul is addressing those bigger things, you know, and, and those are the bigger things. So uh, I think... That's my explanation for why we don't see something so explicit. I think that's really what Jonathan's looking for. He's looking for something so so plain about uh, just a rebuke for not eating kosher. And that's, I think, the reason why it doesn't show up. It's not a weighty matter. It wasn't something that that community was dealing with. It's interesting that you bring that out because uh, actually one of the epistles of the apostolic writings that is believed probably to be the most Jewish of all of the writings is the letter of James. Yes. And, yes. and I know, I, I mean, I've seen people say, you know, faith without works is dead and that's why you have to keep the Sabbath and, and do all, mm-hmm. and point at times to do all this. But yet James's definitions of, of works involves, you know, those acts of human service and kindness to other people in need you know, widows yes. and orphans. Uh, he go he he de- he goes after people for their morality, their ethics. Oh, we have a uh, cameo. I'm, I'm sorry, my three year old busted in the door. Do you want to say hi to everybody? Okay, this is my daughter Kira. <laughs> There's hi, <John>. Kira. <laughs> All right, can you go down to Mama? Sorry about the interruption, folks. So in James, you don't see an emphasis on yep. some of these matters either. Instead, you see some of the high ethical and moral matters. And James has widely agreed to have an almost exclusively, uh, even though I don't go that far, a Jewish audience. Mm. Uh, so, and why doesn't Yeshua himself in his Sermon on the Mount, his definitive interpretation of the Torah, go after some of these? He goes after these much more weightier ethical and moral matters that deal with people's attitudes. Yes. As obvious as it might be, people can be outwardly going through different motions, but oh, yeah. internally just be completely decrepit. And I yes. and I know that yes, as absolutely. we move ahead as 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 a messianic movement, we have to find this fair equilibrium where internally we're solid and externally we're yes. solid, not one or the or or the other. Yeah, hundred percent agree, John. And just the last note on that: what you described, I've gone through like. It's it's one thing to be externally solid. Hey, I'm in front of a congregation. I'm doing great. But internally, things are difficult either for you in your life or you, uh, from, in my case, is like me with the rest of my family. And so I've had to reprioritize a bit. And I think actually this, this year of COVID has actually been a blessing for me in that regard where I've gotten some things um, better settled with my own family so that we can actually be be right externally as well. Well, that's good. So uh, point number five, and I think we already touched on this, uh, you know, a lot. Uh, God mm-hmm. doesn't change, but we do. Could you just briefly summarize what he means by, okay, God doesn't change, but we as humans change? Yeah, um, I, I think his uh, his perspective here is just that God doesn't change. 
this kind of aligns with what we talked about before. God doesn't change, and therefore um, his his um, his characteristics do not change. But because humanity changes, therefore, and this is Jonathan's uh, conclusion, therefore God's laws to humanity change. Um, that I think that's what he's ultimately arguing. And as we talked about, yeah, we do have to take ancient commandments and figure out how to apply them to today. Um, I gave a bunch of examples of this. Um, the Torah has things about blood sacrifices, of course. We don't sacrifice today. It, um, it talks about war brides. Um, it, the Torah has special care for women because they couldn't care for themselves. They were entirely dependent on men. Uh, dowries uh, for for <laughs> because the parents of girls couldn't take care of themselves in old age. Polygamy was not commanded, but at least permitted. At least we see some of the, the patriarchs doing that. Um, slavery, maybe not the kind that we see in 1800s America, but slavery was also permitted because that's the way the culture worked. We didn't have an employer-employee system 3,500 years ago. Lighting fires on Shabbat, fences on the roofs, all these things, leaving the corners of our field for the poor. We have to figure out how to apply these things to today. And and I think Jonathan's view is just that, hey, those were laws that were cultural, and for that time, we don't have to think about them today. Um, my parents and I recently had an episode of the Outreach Israel Report where we addressed some of this. Mm. And the episode was entitled, A Torah Foundation, Multiple Views. Because, mm. I mean, everybody in the Messianic world believes, okay, we're supposed to have a Torah foundation. Okay, great. Yes. What does that mean? You know, when you start <laughs> okay. getting into some of these instructions that are talking about this or that, and you're like, no, wait a second. What am I supposed to do about slavery? Or what am I supposed to do about, uh, you know, war brides, as you said, and dowries and, and, and all of this? And uh, actually, as, as, as I said, you know, one of the uh, techniques has been, well, those slavery instructions describe my relationship as a bond slave to Yeshua now. And you know, people are just totally spiritualizing it. They're totally allegorizing. I'm like, wow, I, don't think, okay. I don't think that's what we need to be doing here. Mm, we can do better. And, and, and my response was, look, uh, Yes, we believe in Yeshua. We believe his interpretation of, of, of Moses' teaching is definitive. We believe that the Messiah event is the most important event in human history, his death, burial, and resurrection, and everything is to be understood through that lens. So yes, yeah, it's pretty easy to understand he's the final sacrifice for uh, final atonement for human sin, and that the Levitical sacrifice has just kind of been put off at least until the millennium and the abominate. If you, if you're premillennial like I am, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, even if you don't believe in Yeshua, you still recognize in the scope of the Torah's narrative that something happened when Adam and Eve ate the fruit yes. and they are expelled out of the garden of Eden. They're expelled out mm-hmm. of God's intimate presence. And even in Judaism, we're looking for the Olam Haba, the world to come. We're trying to get back to what was lost yes. in Eden. Uh, yes. And so, you know, some people, you know, they approach you know, the scriptures very fundamentally. They think that it's written directly to them in the 21st century. Mm. Uh, it's God's love letter to them. I mean, yes, I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. They think it's written just to them, just to <laughs> them personally. And and they don't look at the scripture from the narrative of what was lost and how we're going to get back there. And they don't look at the scriptures for 
what it communicated to its original audiences first. Uh, you yes, see, the yes. way I look at the Torah's instruction is these are some critical commandments, critical directions to ancient Israel, the first stepping stones laid back to what was lost in Eden. And yes. you know, one of the things that messianics don't tend to handle very well, you know, they like to say, well, the Torah pre-existed Mount Sinai because it says that Abraham kept Torah, right? Uh, uh, Genesis 26, he kept Torahs. Okay, I agree that Abraham kept some kind of code that would later be transcribed at Sinai. Yeah. But at the same time, you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were affected by ancient Near Eastern paganism. Sure, you know, of course. You've got Hag. You, I'm sorry. You've got Sarah. She can't conceive. So what does she do? Well, I'm going to give you my handmaiden Hagar. And mm-hmm. guess what? Now we have the beginnings of the Arab-Israeli problem. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. It's like you've got. You know, they're still dealing with idolatry. Uh, yeah. You know, so yes. Some, in fact, I, a great I, deal of the commandments. I remember are years ago. I remember when I was in Sunday school. You know, yeah. back in the 1980s, and we're reading about, uh, you know, Jacob and Leah and Rachel, and someone in Sunday school, you know, who's a, a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, said, asked the Sunday school teacher, "What are mandrakes? Would you please tell me what they are?" <laughs> and and uh, uh, you know, the Sunday school teacher basically says, "Well, you need to ask your parents about that." <laughs> And one of the things that people don't understand is, okay, you know, you run into some of these narratives and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to talk about this to my eight year old. Yeah. Um, indeed. Um, you know, what did the men mean when they wanted to know Lot's visitors? I mean, you know, it's just all these kind of things. I know. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that is unique about the Hebrew Tanakh when you c- look at it in, comp- in, mainly in contrast to other religious bodies of literature, is that it portrays its chosen people in very brutally honest terms. Indeed. I mean, everything that, that they do wrong is recorded for them. Yep. Uh, and we don't often understand that. We often don't understand, you know, God tells us that he is working with imperfect humans here. Uh, yeah, and he's trying yeah. to meet, uh, you know, you you couldn't, for example, you know, ancient Israel at Mount Sinai, it's very, it's very funny. You know, you've got the Israelites delivered from slavery and then in Exodus 21 instructions regarding slavery are given to Israel. Now Mm. that had to do more with an indentured servitude than it did, you know, the massive numbers of laborers to build the pyramids and the, and the palaces of Egypt and that sort of thing. Uh, So I think a lot of it does involve context. You know, people, they're approaching it, in English, they're not putting it in any kind of context. And then, and this is actually where a lot of Old Testament theologians have made some, I think, legitimate contributions. Uh, Walter Kaiser does this in his book, uh, Toward Old Testament Ethics. There are generally, you know, two types of commandments that you see in the, uh, in the Torah. You see what are often labeled as apodictic commandments. Appendictic commandments, having some kind of, you know, thou shalt not or some kind of clear restriction associated with them. So, you know, there are a lot of instructions that, uh, you know, people would look to as being immutable moral laws that have that kind of, you know, like don't murder, don't steal, that sort of thing. And then you have what's known as casuistic commandments, which are ancient Israelite case law. 
Uh, and this is where you see a huge amount of positive, I would say, interpretation on the part of uh, evangelical Protestants, many people mm-hmm. in Judaism. They're saying, yes, these are important things. They teach us about God's character, but they arose out of circumstances in ancient Israel. And so how do we transfer principles over for today? And that's yes. why you have Orthodox Judaism, Conservative Judaism, and Reform Judaism. Right, yep, yep, uh, different interpretations so, of how to do that, yep. But they're all looking to the same instructions, and they're all saying yeah. that they have something to inform us about on some yeah, level. Mm-hmm, um, and, and I don't think the Messianic movement has allowed itself to enter into some of these discussions as well as it ought to. Yeah. Um, and and I and I do think and and I have been the brunt of this label many times because I you know they would uh, people have said oh you're breaking Torah you know you're liberal you know you don't believe this and I'm like no 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 that's not the issue we're reading the same scriptures we believe it has validity for us you just think that you can apply ancient Israel like case law in the 21st century one to one I'm saying no you can't do that. You know, mm-hmm. I'm saying we are affected by the Jewish history of interpretation, and we're also affected by the Messiah event. So, indeed, yes, um, yes. You know, we, you know, and in that case, yes, there are going to be some things that we're looking more to the spirit of the law than the letter. Yes. Uh, but I think even Judaism without Yeshua has done much of the same thing, and we we don't recognize that. Uh, yeah, 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 that's right. And, yeah. and and that's something which does need to be brought out more and more. And, and I think you are going to begin to see that as we enter into the future. I hope so. Which uh, leads us to point six, and we may have already covered this. You know, contextual application of commandments. Yeah, Jonathan here says, uh, "Quote: If I tell my son to not turn on the TV because it's bedtime." Does that mean he isn't able to watch it the next day? Am I changing or am I dealing with him differently because of a difference in the time of day? And he's basically arguing it's the same with God in the Torah. He's saying, hey, God forbid these things because of the time of the, I don't know, of, of the, the, the age, if you will, the age in which ancient Israel was coming out of Egypt, coming into the land. But, Jonathan argues, uh, now that here we are some 3,000 years later, uh, now it's not that God has changed. It's just that the context has changed. Therefore, the application of those commandments uh, is no longer the same. And I agree they're not no longer the same. But I think our, our difference is what does that mean? Do we apply them at all? Do we apply the principle? Do we spiritualize them? Do we discard them? Uh, I think Jonathan's analogy isn't perfect. I don't want to be too nitpicky here because – no analogy is perfect, but I, you know, I, I said, look, in Jonathan's analogy, it would be, uh, well, here, let me let me give preface first. Some of the Torah commandments uh, have an eternal status attached to them, don't they? Uh, we think of Shabbat, you know, this is to be a sign between you and me forever, says God. That's that's hard to to fit into this analogy. Then it it kind of breaks that analogy a bit. So some of the commandments we know are absolutely eternal. I don't know how else to get around that. Maybe if you really spiritualize things, you could you could make it disappear. But I, I don't think that's a good way to go about doing things. Um, so I said in Jonathan's analogy, it would be as though uh, he said, "My agreement with you, son, is that the TV is off every Sunday." 
And then his son tells him, ah, you know, we've categorized that commandment into bucket B, therefore it can be safely ignored. That's kind of how I see a lot of Christianity looking at the Torah. Again, it's not that Christians are not Torah observant. They are, um, and many of them keeping the weighty matters of the Torah. But I disagree with this idea that just because we, in modern times, recategorize commandments or categorize them a particular way, that that means that we can discard them. I think there's still, they have something to tell us about how to live, uh, how to live our lives, even for some really weird ones like fences on a roof. <laughs> so yeah, this is, that's Jonathan's objection here. He's just saying, Hey, the commandments aren't eternal per se. They were contextual for that age and for that time. And maybe they're not relevant today. And that's, that's my answer. Well, one of the things that I remember many years ago, um, you know, particularly as you get into, okay, we believe the Torah is valid instruction for today, yeah. but believing that it's valid, that it's relevant is, is very different than, well, how do we implement this for today? Yeah. And one of the things that I know, particularly in the more independent Hebrew root sector is that they tend to only look at the scriptures as though they were written directly to them in the mm. 20th and 21st centuries, no real consideration for what these things communicated to ancient Israel and mm. really no desire at all to enter into, you know, Jewish debates over halakha and implementation. Mm. That's and, right. and yeah, one of the arguments, ignored. one of the arguments that I, had to deal with I field over 15 years ago was, well, I'm not going to look at what anything that a Jew who rejects Yeshua has to say about these instructions. And, you know, I, on, on, on first glance, you're like, all right. Um, I understand where you're coming from, but secondly, it's like, so you believe that Jewish people who don't recognize Yeshua as Messiah, uh, that, if you look at how they have interpreted different, you know, agricultural instructions and applied them in for their setting in the Russian empire, that they have nothing to tell you about anything uh, that, mm. that, you know, Jewish rabbis who don't recognize Yeshua uh, taking the instructions regarding commerce have nothing to tell you about your business practices today, even mm. though you will go get an MBA at a university and be taught by atheists about, ah. about business practices today. Gotcha, I mean, that just, gotcha, I mean, that yep. just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And, no, no, that's inconsistent. You're right. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, we have to be, we have to be careful, obviously, but at the same time, the halakhic tradition has a place. It doesn't yeah. have to have the place, but it can have a place because these are smart people you know they yes. they're dealing with the same questions of human existence as you or i how do i keep my family from freezing uh in these long russian winters you know, <laughs> yeah. to, you know, on shabbat is it sin if i have to put a log on the fire otherwise we're dead i mean yeah. this is i mean these are some these are some important questions that i think if we were much more favorable to the Jewish interpretive tradition, yes. we would we 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 ratchet down our rhetoric, uh, and we would see that it's okay, uh, and we don't have to be as as rigid because yes. okay, there are going to be things we disagree with the rabbis about, you know, Jewish and non-Jewish equality, is Yeshua the Messiah? We might really disagree on on 
on some of what the rabbis have to say about looking at women. Are, are you know, are women just there to clean house and, and give birth or are they actually human mm. beings? Yes. Uh, but there are going to be a lot of things that we're going to agree on. And, and indeed, joining into some of these conversations can, I think, very much help uh, what, what we've seen. But you know, you've, if you've been in the Hebrew roots movement, you know that, well, we're just returning to the scriptures, no traditions of men at all. And I think that that is so unspeakably naive because, uh, and, and I, and I tell people, uh, this when I teach the new members class in my local congregation, the subject of kosher comes up. I mm-hmm. said, you know, a lot of you believe that the kosher laws in Holy Scripture are valid for today and that you follow what's known as quote-unquote biblically kosher. Sure. So so you'll eat cheeseburgers or a meat lasagna, and yes. you'll say, we don't follow any traditions at all. Okay, the moment you put a piece of chicken in your mouth, you have followed a tradition because all of the birds that are regarded as clean are determined by Jewish tradition. So, ah, interesting. The, the, so you think you can get around tradition completely, but the moment you put a piece of chicken in your mouth, or perhaps even more obvious, a piece of turkey in your mouth, yeah, right, you right. have accepted a Jewish halakhic ruling regarding what birds are considered clean or unclean. Turkey's more obvious because that's that just flat came from the New World. Right, right. It was New World. They had never seen it before. That's but, a great uh, point, John. Uh, I'd like to add a little bit to that. Um, Rabbi Stuart Dowerman, who's been involved in the Messianic Judaism movement for some time, uh, he said, I was once at a, uh, I think it was a Protestant church of some kind where they were talking against tradition and how tradition has caused all of these problems in Judaism and how it, it caused the Pharisees to uh, miss even the Messiah. Tradition was so bad. And he said, and then at the end, um, they said, all right, now I'd like us all to hold hands and bow our heads. And he goes, and it was lost on them that that was a tradition too. <laughs> there's, there's no right. commandment that you have to do that during prayer. Um, to your point though, John, you're saying, look, maybe we can engage with, um, with Jewish halakhic, uh, discussion. It doesn't have to be the end all. Uh, a friend of mine, a teacher at a messianic congregation, Daniel Lancaster, he, he said, um, these things should be a, a frame of reference. It doesn't have to say, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to just agree with whatever the rabbis come up with, but it can help us to wrestle with some of these issues. Um, and we need to, too, because if you look at so many of the commandments, we can't actually keep them. Uh, this week, we have coming up uh, Rosh Hashanah, also called Yom Teruah in the Torah. Uh, the commandments for that, uh, we largely can't keep because the commandments have to do with sacrifices and offerings, additional offerings brought during these times. So how do we keep them? You know, m- maybe you could say, well, we're supposed to hear the sound of the shofar, but that might even be a bit of tradition too, because the Torah actually says that uh, you're to hear the teruah, the shout, uh, which may or may not be a shofar. <laughs> so it's these things we we have to wrestle with and to claim. I think, and this is our really, I think we're on the same page here, John. What we're trying to tell folks is we have to. We, first, we can't say that we don't keep any tradition. It's just not true. We we have traditions, even if we're not thinking about them. We implicitly accept some traditions, including from the Jewish world. Um, and, and that can, if we recognize that, that's going to help inform our practice. Right. Now, uh, 
we have to get go a little faster, but uh, uh, point seven uh, yep. in the blog, the Torah of Moses hasn't always been here. Uh, and just kind of glancing through this, and I think we've already covered this as well. You know, the Messianic community does not do a, a good job at explaining how, uh, yes, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they, they kept some instructions, mm-hmm. but they weren't codified until Mount Sinai. Yes. Uh, and, and indeed, you know, some of the instructions that, you know, they come out of ancient Israel's experience about being delivered through the Exodus. Uh, and I think that that, that gets lost on a lot of this because, you know, you see the Israelites in slavery to Egypt and then God delivers them to his mountain to be given his instruction, mainly his charge in order to be a free and blessed people. That's, that's yeah. the narrative. Mm. Uh, but this idea that, you know, ever, that, uh, at, at, uh, in particular in, uh, in the Garden of Eden, you know, they were just going to be given this whole package of instruction and then, uh, you know, later it would have to be, uh, understood through the Messiah event. I think that's very, very simplistic, you know, and, and even yeah. with the, the understanding of the development of messianism, you know, we go to mm. you know, the you know the the fall in the Garden of Eden, and they're given the promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Did they really know what that meant? You know, in the Garden of Eden, mm. they probably had some idea that whatever problems had just been created would be resolved. But mm. they didn't have this comprehensive understanding of a Messiah to come. I mean, so many of the doctrines that we take for granted, they took centuries, they took millennia to develop. Yeah, interesting. Wow. And I don't think that, I mean, this, I mean, this happens, you know, you, you get this understanding when you really do read the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, God's unfolding plan of salvation history. Uh, and in, in, in particular, it's a different crisis moments where these questions are asked, uh, you know, okay, God, we're out of Egypt. What are we supposed to do now? And God's answer is you're supposed to receive my instruction, and if you do this, you'll be a blessed people. Questions of yeah. of the whole messiahship or a messiah to come. Oh, my goodness. Um, the Babylonians have exiled us from Jerusalem. The throne of David is vacant. This was yeah. a throne that was supposed to be perpetually occupied with somebody. Yes. God, what do we do now? Uh, and mm-hmm. then you, that's when you start to see these ideas of a, of a specific Messiah deliverer figure. And of course, there are clues and there, and there are words that are planted all throughout God's word up until this. But now the attention of people is focused. You know, even something as rudimentary as the resurrection, you really yes. don't see the questions about, well, what happens when I, we die and what's going to happen in the long term future? They really don't come on until, um, although the, the 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 clues are there until the Maccabean crisis when it's like what do we do now and and uh, yeah. and you would say that oh wow that's really late I mean that's like within two centuries of Yeshua yes it is um, mm-hmm. I mean these things are always there but you know God will use crisis moments to get people to ask the the you know the, the the questions I mean the the crisis moment that yes. that affected the Jewish world was the Holocaust. Um, you know, God, right. you, know, yeah. you know, the German, where, where Jewish, was God and all that? Yeah. Yeah. Where was God? I mean, the German Jewish community was, you mean, it, it was German first, Jewish second. 
And they saw themselves mm. as being part of the most advanced civilization on earth, technologically, educated, philosophically, yes. Yes. Edu- everything. And, yep. and that country used all of its technology and philosophy against one of its most significant, uh, you know, social demographics. And yes. of course the, le- the lesson is if it can happen in Germany, it can happen anywhere else. Um, yeah, indeed, indeed. But, uh, I just, I just, I just don't see your friend here interpreting the scriptures narratively because if he did, uh, he would understand, you know, there's not going to be this whole package law given to Adam and Eve. I see. It's mm. just impossible. Um, right. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense to them. Yeah. And especially, I mean, if you consider like, hey, there was no death. Uh, in the beginning, uh, then we're given a Torah that says, Hey, here's this thing that you need to do to give us, give a, an offering for sin. I mean, would it have made sense? Um, I guess you could argue it would maybe to Cain and Abel, but I don't know. It seems like it wouldn't have made sense. Some of these things are revelatory over time. And in the meanwhile, I think God has, um, entrusted us to, uh, to figure out how to apply what he has given us throughout all of scripture and all of history. We were to use um, our God-given brains, our, our rationality to, to apply this best we know how. Right. And, and indeed we, as, as I stress, these are some conversations that uh, I think are long overdue. Now, mm-hmm. now moving on, you know, point eight, he says, surely Roman Gentiles weren't keeping Passover. And yeah. you know, one of the things that I just want to make an observation of, the you know, themes of Passover and the Exodus are all throughout the New Testament. Mm. Um, I mean, yes. they're all throughout the, the you know, and, and actually one of the, I think, most significant uh, points that doesn't get understood enough by contemporary Christian people is that up until the Messiah event, the yes. most significant event in biblical history was yes. the exodus of ancient Israel. That Agreed. is, you know, every Jewish person uh, in the first century would have understood who they were through the narrative of the exodus and the Passover. And that's so right. that's why, of course, it is innately connected with Yeshua's work. I mean, this kind of a thing, uh, I mean, you can, his comment here, they weren't keeping Passover, uh, I mean, this this is the kind of thing that can be argued from the line of, well, I don't see a lot of direct Old Testament quotations in, you know, this letter of Paul or that letter mm. of Paul. It's like, mm. are you really that daft? Uh, yeah, how many understood concepts and understood ideas are so interwoven within the text that, um, you know, it's kind of like right here in front of you if you have, you know, a real good understanding of the Tanakh or the Old Testament. Uh yeah, we're yeah. missing maybe the some of the major themes of scripture, and just because something isn't mentioned in a particular letter doesn't mean that uh, approval of its dismissal is implicitly given. But I my answer to this, to interpret. but my answer to this would be yes. But but we have explicit evidence that the Corinthians were keeping Passover. That's we know that right. we know that uh, from First Corinthians, and by the way. The Epistle to the Romans was written in Chintria, which is in the vicinity of ancient Corinth, right? Ah, uh, interesting. Go, go look on your map. Um, yes. So, so this whole idea that they weren't keeping 
Passover. To me, it's like, so the Romans weren't, but the Corinthians were. Now, yeah, agreed. Now, That's I, inconsistent. Okay. Now, yes, it was. It would have been a any Passover observance would have been done according to diaspora halakhic norms, not necessarily halakhic norms uh, in and around the vicinity of Jerusalem. Okay, but uh, you know the themes of Passover, the Exodus. You know, you don't see Paul actively discouraging any believers in the first century from observing Passover. So, mm-hmm. you know, I just agreed. think. I just think, you know, I mean, this this argument, well, I have to see explicit evidence in every single epistle. I mean, you're missing the, the genre of what an epistle is. Mm. And, and indeed, you know, one of the classic, I think, uh, questions that gets raised today is, well, why are you telling me that homosexuality is wrong when Jesus never once talks about it? Right, right. I mean, I mean, Paul talks about it, but you know, we can reinvent that, but Jesus never once talks about it, uh, specifically. Uh, yeah, I, there was a Babylon Bee article that highlighted something similar. It says, uh, it was an article written from the view of a, an armed burglar or something. And it said, well, Jesus never condemned, uh, first, first degree, I don't like armed robbery or something like he never talked about it. Therefore it's okay. Uh, and, and to that point too, my, my father-in-law uh, came from a, a, a church tradition that um, they don't sing in their churches because singing isn't explicitly mentioned in the new Testament. This, this is kind of like uh, figuring out what the Bible says by omission. I don't like it. I don't think it's a good way to interpret uh, my final note about this, John, too, is in addition to what you said about the Corinthians actually keeping it, the, the non-Jewish Gentile, <laughs> the, the Gentile Corinthians keeping Passover, I also highlighted to Jonathan that um, we know the the leaders of the Roman-believing community, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, were Jewish. Uh, and we know this because, uh, in fact, we have a record in Acts that they were ousted from Rome during Claudius's purge of Jews from Rome, meaning they were identifiably Jewish such that the Romans could even oust them. It's likely then that at least the leadership was keeping Passover because they were identifiably Jewish. And if the leadership was keeping Passover, isn't it rational to conclude that uh, the lay people also were keeping Passover with the leadership? I argue yes. Right. And, and one of the things that, that also doesn't get emphasized enough is that, of course, by this time when Paul is writing Romans, there are new non-Jewish believers, new Greek and Roman believers being pulled in directly from paganism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, the core of the first non-Jewish believers, they came from the ranks of the God-fearers. That's and they right. were already, uh, many of them were already engaged in, in at least Jewish life. A, you know, they were living Jewishly on some level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so things like Passover, even kosher eating were already being practiced by them. Often, Wonderful points. often yeah. God-fearers, uh, stop short at full-on proselyte circumcision. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the principal examples of a God-fearer is the centurion Cornelius, who, ah, yes. uh, I mean, he was even in, in Acts, uh, it's, it's stated that uh, you know, he was observing the traditional prayer times. But he was, wow, un- yeah. but he was uncircumcised, and in all likelihood, the reason he was uncircumcised because he was a Roman centurion, and uh, if he went through it all the way, he could be executed for treason against Caesar. I mean, that, uh, I that, that would mm, that would have wow. been. So, 
fascinating. Uh, even never- even the Godfears were the core of that community. How it started would have been people celebrating Passover. Right. I mean, the first non-Jewish believers would have been pulled from the ranks of the God-fearers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I, I think that, again, you know, you, how many of us have, when, if, we re- if we were raised in church, we didn't have a lot of this background that we should have had for understanding Paul's letters. Because if we did, we wouldn't look at, well, Saul the Jew has now become Paul the Christian and, and, he, and he's converted to a new religion rather than see some of these debates as more intramural Jewish debates. Uh, and, and, and one of the things I think is, I think the Messianic community has rightfully stressed is that we are returning to more of a, you know, first century model of faith where we see yes. Jewish and non-Jewish believers in these communities and these same issues are actually rising up in our faith. I know. Yeah. Repeating history. um, And there are there differences. Absolutely. But, but we, these, these Pauline letters are actually more relevant now than they've ever been because we see some of these circumstances arising, you know, very organically um, among us. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's how I look at many of Paul's letters He's often dealing with Jewish Gentile issues that are very relevant for us now uh, because we are dealing with some of them, especially as many non-Jews are taking the, t- uh, the Torah more seriously. Okay, so uh, point number nine, uh, yeah. he says different laws for different peoples. Now, uh, one of the things that I know is a huge debate uh, in the contemporary Messianic community is how much of the Torah is to be followed by Jewish believers, how much mm-hmm. by non-Jewish believers. There are those who believe that Jewish people and everyone else have absolutely no differences at all. Um, sure. I don't agree with that because there are instructions given to ethnic Israelites that concern tribal inheritance in the Holy Land. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there are some obvious differences and then I think for Jewish people, uh, the the Torah, the Tanakh, it composes much more than just their spiritual heritage. It also composes their ethnic and cultural heritage. So it, they do have a different relationship with it on that basis than, say, somebody who comes in from a non-Jewish perspective and is looking at it as his or her spiritual heritage. Uh, yes. So. So I don't think you can say that Jewish and non-Jewish believers are exactly the same. However, yes. uh, you know, when you get it, and, and yes, when you get into the Torah's instructions, you know, you see instructions for men, for women, for priests, for course, farmers, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so there are some of those, you know, differences. You know, I don't have to be concerned about my menstrual cycle, for example. At least, at least we would hope not. <laughs> we um, hope not. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but, uh, I mean, they're those kinds of things. But then when you get to like the, the, the overall day to day obedience to God, I think it's fair to say that Jewish return it, to Yeshua. Uh, I think, I think that it's fair to say that all of us have more in common than not. And, and that we need to focus on commonality first rather than differences first. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely agreed. Sorry. My internet was a little shaky there. Um, yeah, I, I agree.
What I disagree about here is just categorizing commandments into obsolescence. Basically, what Jonathan says here is, look, because God's expectation for Noah was different than what it was for David, meaning it was a time difference, not even like, you know, are you part of the people of Israel? It's just a time difference. He's saying that um, so also it is for us that because of the time difference, um, thousands of years later, we don't have to keep these commandments. I don't think it's that clear. And also, I, I don't see any evidence for that um, in Yeshua's day. You know, Yeshua was speaking, um, what, some thousand years after Moses, and yet um, he's not saying, well, those that was for a different time. Um, so we can just, we don't have to keep that. It's obsolete. Um, so I think that's that's the danger I see with this different laws for different people. Yes, there are, but just because of a time uh, difference doesn't mean they're obsolete. Maybe they're applied differently today, yes, but it doesn't mean they're obsolete, have nothing to teach us, have nothing to inform us about our walk with the Lord. Well, one of the most frequent questions that I have had to field, uh, whether it's through our ministry or and, and being a part of different Messianic congregations, people will come up to me and they'll say, John, tell me very simplistically what commandments I'm supposed to follow and what commandments I'm not supposed to follow. And I'm like, okay. Um, I, I and you can't do that. I mean, you you you, yeah. you can't no. do that. All <laughs> you can do is is provide a framework for people understanding certain things. Now, yeah, there I was are, gonna say this is something like in the Talmud, right? Like uh, House of Shammai, how should I keep the Torah? Well, I'll stand on one foot and do that. I mean, <laughs> you can't do that. And I mean, there there are very clearly instructions that are given, you know, up until the third generation or tenth generation. So there's some timestamp mm. built into it. So that that is a clue that okay, there are going to be things that principally concern ancient Israel in the ancient yes. Near East. Yes. But yes. then, but then there are these things that have you know olam eternal associated yeah. with them. Yes. There are things that control human behavior, which hasn't changed that much since creation. Like Leviticus Indeed. 18, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. if there's, I mean, if there's anything that's relevant for today, surely it's Leviticus 18, uh, given all of the sexual perversions of our time. Um, now, and in that case, you know, the principles remain intact. The venue of how to sin, that's become far more interesting and far more diverse uh, in yeah. no small part due to technology. That's right. That's right. So, you know, this, I mean, so much of, of what I see in this blog, you know, what we're talking about today, you know, it comes down to we have not permitted ourselves to have these deep discussions. Mm. You know, we mm. want things to be simple. We want things to become in these tiny little package sound bites. Uh, the history of Jewish interpretation has shown that these things are not as simple as we want them to be. Uh, we have tolerated simple interpretations. And by not having these discussions, we've, we're now getting into some severe problems. And some people are just saying, you know, I'm just sick of this messianic thing. There's all this legalism. People are making things up as they go along. Mm. They're throwing things up against the wall to see what sticks. Mm. Uh, they're deciding the will of God by casting lots or the flip of a coin. I mean, how, you know, I mean, all, all of these kinds of things. And I know that, uh, we have got to do better. You know, the, you know, we entered into the 2020s wanting 2020 vision. And these are discussions we've just been putting off for too long. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, point number 10, he says, uh, 
or it said that Shabbat feasts and kosher are cultural. Mm-hmm. And your first response is that, well, Shabbat, the Sabbath, isn't cultural. Yeah, I say, well, look, if it is cultural, why is God doing it in the beginning before Israel ever existed? We see that in the early chapters of Genesis. Um, secondly, a point you raised, John, earlier in this podcast is um, the biggest event, biblical event, prior to Messiah was the Exodus. And the Exodus is tied in with the feast. Like, it's an important part. You know, Passover and the Exodus are like, they're like this. <laughs> um and we see this not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. I don't think it's a coincidence that in Acts 2, when God sends his Holy Spirit fire on the disciples, uh, they're there at the temple in Jerusalem. Why are they there and why are all of the Jews from all these different nations there? It's because it was one of the feasts. Um, that tells me that this is a, a, a theme that is woven throughout the scriptures, not just like, to ancient Bronze Age Israel, but this is throughout the Bible. And if it's throughout the Bible, shouldn't, shouldn't that inform what, how we look at the feasts? It, to me, it seems very clear that, look, it's more than just something for Bronze Age Israel. It's more than something for just the Jewish people. I think Shabbat and the feasts are meaningful for every disciple of the Jewish Messiah. I think the fact that Yeshua himself imbued Passover with new meaning, uh, meaning when he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Given that that's the guy we're following, given that he used that opportunity to say, these feasts are, have new meaning in me, the Messiah. Um, shouldn't Messiah's followers uh, also keep Passover? Shouldn't we also see Passover as something holy and God-given? My argument is, yeah, um, these aren't just Jewish feasts, um, that these are from the Lord. They're practiced by Messiah. I think there's good scriptural evidence, as we've talked about in this podcast, that whether Jewish or non-Jewish, these things are good for God's people. Right. These are things that Yeshua did, and and indeed— As we contemplate the upcoming fall high holidays and who is going to be attending mainly a lot of Messianic services, Messianic yes. Jewish services, the majority of people are going to be non-Jewish. Mm-hmm. And and the congregational mm-hmm. leadership recognizes that, oh, they're hoping that, well, we've got free seats for you. Uh, you don't have to pay for your seats at the synagogue. So they're mm-hmm. hoping that maybe some Jewish non-believers will come in, but more non-Jewish followers of Israel's Messiah are going to be there. They're trying to, they're going to be participating. Okay. Some of them are hoping that the rapture will take place. And so that's why they're there. Okay. I mean, I I, I know that. I know know that. Um, But some are are genuinely intrigued. We want to do something that our Lord and Savior did and they're not being turned away. And and indeed, I, I know that, you know, from my experience, and getting plugged back into the Messianic Jewish movement. They just want to make sure that you're living a life like Yeshua. It's a genuine work of the Holy Spirit, and that you are wanting to participate in Jewish evangelism and outreach. Mm -hmm. Uh, The mission, yeah, yeah, yeah. salvation Um, of Israel. I think it's, now before I forget, I think it's very interesting that you, very appropriate that you put in here, uh, you know, all human beings need a Sabbath, don't we? Consider the 11-year experiment in which the Soviet Union forbid a weekly Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, and, and indeed, even before that, uh, in the in, in the French Revolution, going with the metric calendar of mm. of ten months and a ten day week, right? And, yes, and, yes. And people just getting exhausted and like, <laughs> hey, we can't do this. We can't do this. Um, and, and indeed, uh, when it comes to the whole Sabbath debate, uh, even though I think that they're wrong in concluding that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, uh, yeah. at least among those who are keeping a what would be called semi sabbatarian viewpoint, they mm-hmm. at least recognize, yeah, human beings need rest. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. We need, we need rest. And, yep. and we can't just, you know, go on and on and on. We have to, we, we need rest. Too many people are having heart attacks and strokes. Yes. John, I've, I've got a, a, an interesting little side note here from my corner of the world. I work in technology. There was an article from a, uh, just a secular person. I, I think it appeared, I want to say in the Atlantic, which is not a religious magazine, um, that argued, uh, we need a Sabbath. And in the article, this person said, look, um, we're seeing all of these startup companies in Silicon Valley where it's just work, 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 work. You've got to work. Uh, y- y- you have to be the next what we call a unicorn, a billionaire company uh, where you're making a billion dollars and you're going to have huge returns for the investors. So you just work, 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 work. And this person said, look, um, when I was growing up, my dad was the Shabbos goy, <laughs> the, Shab- the Shabbat Gentile for this Jewish family who lived next to us. They would have us you know, turn on the light or something on Shabbat or, you know, do whatever they needed to do that they wouldn't do on Shabbat. And the whole article, again, from a secular viewpoint saying, look, we need a Sabbath. Uh, this, this idea of just working, 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 we're killing people. We're making unhappy people. What is, what good is life if you make a million dollars, but you're just working all the time and you have no, no enjoyment, no personal enjoyment, no one to enjoy it with. It's just, it's not a, it's not a good whole life. Um, I, I raise that only to say it's clear from the things you just mentioned with the French Revolution, uh, the Soviet experiment in the 1950s, uh, and, and even secular examples like the one I just gave that Shabbat is needed for all humanity. Absolutely. And so uh, we come to the final point. Yes. uh, Number 11. And you actually have like, I think, uh, you know, like four to five pages of commentary here. Uh, So, (laughs) um, but this, but I think this is a a point that gets talked about a great deal in one's messianic experience. And it's Torah doesn't save, doesn't sanctify. Now that uh, last part is the contentious issue. I would say, go ahead. Right. And, and, Indeed, uh, one of the things that, I mean, this is a classic debate, even in Protestantism, you know, the, the role of works, the role of actions, yep. Yep. Uh, am I, you know, do I get saved? Am I justified, i.e. cleansed of my sins because of the actions I perform, or are the actions I perform in obedience to God resultant of my salvation? Right. And indeed, I, I, a lot of people and a lot of sincere believers I interact with who are evangelical, uh, they would, they would recognize that, no, I am not saved by my works, but I am yes. saved to perform good works. good works. And that's, and that's, and that's the full view of Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 10, not just 8 mm-hmm. and 9. Yes. Uh, but I, but I know that, uh, in, you know, different theological traditions, you know, either Calvinism or Wesleyanism, there yep. is a, there is a strong belief that 
if you are uh, going through the process of sanctification, being holy, you will be in obedience to God's instruction. I know. Uh, so now we haven't gotten into what those instructions are, but mm-hmm. there is the broad conviction that God's instruction, i.e. law, whatever that is, yes. is intended to have a sanctification purpose. And yes. it would seem here that uh, your friend doesn't believe that. or I was surprised. I was surprised because I, I know a lot of Christians would say, yes, good works are part of sanctification of one's life. Um, but it seems like Jonathan here doesn't. I'm just going to quote him real quick. He says, um, when I defended my Torah observant stance, when he was in the Hebrew roots movement, I always said that Torah doesn't justify, it sanctifies. I didn't do it to earn salvation, but I did it because I am saved. Okay. All right. Yep. Definitely heard that many times. We just said that. He goes, but Galatians specifically states that Torah observance doesn't even do that, doesn't even sanctify. He says, Galatians 3.3, 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? And Jonathan inserts in brackets, sanctified by the flesh, end quote. And then Jonathan finishes his quote, it's only in and through the work of Jesus that we are both saved and made righteous. Hmm. And I take that to mean he thinks that um, works, good works, don't have a role in the sanctification of a believer. That's how I read that. Um, very surprised by that. Not all Christians believe that. I think there's good evidence, even from Paul's letters, that that's not at all, in fact, what what Paul is arguing for. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I raised this um, theoretical to, to Jonathan, too. I said, Look, suppose a man um, says the sinner's prayer, invites God into his life, um, confesses his sin. We we believe, I think we're all on the same page, that God forgives that person right there. Um, if he didn't, then the thief on the cross is is lost. But we, we, we understand from the Gospels he was not. That said, if that man goes on uh, for the rest of his life in, in drunkenness every night, he's sleeping around with everyone uh, that he, he desires, uh, he mistreats people. If this person is ruled by anger and profanity and he's producing no good fruit in his life, is that man saved? And will he see the Lord in the resurrection? And I, I, I said, you know, if Jonathan's consistent here, he would have to say that man is saved because even though he lived wickedly and never repented, that it's that kind of once saved, always saved. We get into that mode, right? We, I guess we would have to confirm that. I would say, and then I said, no, but I suspect that if Yeshua was here and he talked to that person, Yeshua would say, you need to repent of your sin. Uh, it was the central message of Yeshua. You know, go back to Matthew 3. It's Yeshua's telling people to repent, turn from your sins, and turn to God. So it seems to me that works have something to do with our sanctification. And just to clarify for folks not into the theological language, when we say sanctification, we mean you're being made holy. You're being made um, into a proper vessel of God's word and of his spirit. Um, that, I think that's what we mean when we say sanctification. So good works play a role in that. Yeshua uh, in Matthew 5 um, said that we are to do good works and that um, it will glorify God when other people see our good works. So I don't know what to say to Jonathan other than I have a completely different understanding of the scriptures that I guess he thinks that good works have no role in the sanctification of a believer. I strongly disagree. 
Well, this is a classic debate. It's been going on for quite some time. Yep. You, know, you you encounter a lot of people. Uh, certainly today, they make various professions of faith, uh, and then you know they think they've got you know some proverbial fire insurance, as it were, or whatever mm. whatever it mm. is. Mm. Their whole idea of salvation is being saved from some form of eternal punishment, yeah. and they don't believe that salvation is anything else. Uh, they yeah. don't believe that salvation it, it involves a transformation of the human person to be more like the Lord who came and died for yeah. them. Where's the that new is, man? Yeah, and that is something that is that is absolutely uh, problematic. Uh, you know, the, the, you know the, we have a very, and I don't know why we do. Uh, I think I think people who preceded us in faith uh, several centuries ago probably had a much more dynamic, works-oriented salvation walked out than a lot of us today do, because we face far less difficulty in our lives because of technology, because of medicine. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of us don't have. You know, we don't face, you know, deadly diseases like, you know, people several centuries ago did. Uh, sure. That's why this whole COVID thing has scared the crap out of everybody. <laughs> it's a plague um, of old, yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't have, you know, the family farm with the family cemetery where, well, I just had to go bury my child who died mm-hmm. of, you know, some, you know, chicken Some disease that's now preventable, yeah. Yeah, so we don't face the difficulties that the that previous generations did. Um, you know, I have to say, you know, we don't have the wars that other generations, you know, fought. You know, like is I my know. son going to come home from the trenches? Uh, yeah. you, know, you know, whatever it is, you know, we mm-hmm. have it very, very easy. We have a lot of technology. We, we have a lot of conveniences that other people didn't have. And so yeah. that has affected our view of faith and our, and our view mm-hmm. of the actions that the Lord expects of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, some of us have gone through traumatic or dramatic events in our lives where we knew that, okay, God, only you can solve this. You know, otherwise I'm going to go jump off the roof. Mm. Uh, you know, God, only you can solve this. And, and God used that, the series of circumstances for us to, you know, okay, here are all the things I know I've done wrong. And here are all the things I don't know if I've done wrong, but I'm going to talk about them anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I need your, you know, presence in my life in a very dynamic way, protecting mm. me from all the mistakes I've made. Yes. Uh, and I need to be committed to, activities that are pleasing to you rather than displeasing to you. Yes, uh, yes. And so I'm very worried, just like many, just like I know you are and many others are with our current generation of people who are, they profess belief in Yeshua or Jesus, but their actions are like completely opposite. Uh, I know some yeah. of this is, is, you know, we want to declare the good news or gospel with the least common denominator. We don't want people to, really have to contemplate what it means to have a, a heart change, much less a change of the mind, uh, because a lot of the things we've just gone through, they it's imperative that one has a new heart and a new mind. Uh, yes. We're not just talking about attitudes. We're also talking about theology and how they both mm. work together. Mm. Uh, I mean, we're, we're going into some very complicated issues here with, you know, commandments are going to be followed, not followed. Uh, yep. But if we don't have 
a transformed heart, a transformed mind, if we're not committed to actions reflective and honoring of Yeshua, then you know, what does this mean? Like, like I know that I've gotten heat in the past because I believe that you know, Torah observance or Torah obedience is to be compelled by the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the Holy Spirit's timetable is not my timetable. It's not mm. your timetable. With some people, it's going to be a lot faster than others. I'm not the Lord. I can't interject myself. <laughs> uh, but I do believe it's important for us to facilitate environments and congregations where the Lord can do his unique work uh, in right. the lives of men and women. Uh, so, you know, there, you know, there are a lot of people who their idea of grace is I can, I've gotten saved. I can now do whatever I want. Um, yeah. And that's not healthy. It's not healthy for the person. And I think yeah. it also hinders our salvation message because if the lives of believers looks indistinguishable from the lives of the secular world, why would people be attracted to holiness? There is no holiness there for them to be attracted to. So it hinders our message about yeah. Yeshua, and it hurts the person um, I, to, to live without good works. We had a relative, had a relative. Um, uh, when my father died in 1992, he was involved in the funeral and was one of the pallbearers and everything else. Yeah. Um, and he had been, he'd grown up in a certain denomination and had said the sinner's prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then for some reason or another, after my father died, it came out that, okay, he had been, uh, he had been in the U.S. Navy, uh, aboard an aircraft carrier and unbeknownst to my aunt, he yes. had literally a woman in every port. Oh. And, um, you know, my aunt finds out about this and you know, she goes to her friends, she goes to her pastor, what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to forgive him? Am I supposed to get a divorce? Am I supposed to get separated? Actually, the first thing everyone said is, you need to go get an AIDS test is what you need to get. Yeah, um, that's really sad. Uh, but, you know, these kinds of stories can be multiplied over and over and yeah, over again. Because people are wicked. Yeah, and, I know. You know, for, for us, uh, one of the things that one, I think this is perhaps the most difficult part of ministry that, that I have discovered, you know, cause there is, okay, there's the theological part. There's the difficult issues part. Mm-hmm. There's the, uh, you know, I had to wrestle with Hebrew and Greek and these commentaries and Jewish and Christian perspectives and debates and all of this. But yeah. then there's the part of, you know, really making yourself vulnerable as the, the teacher, the pastor, the leader, like, Okay, um, let me tell you what I went through in my life and how I still have to appeal for God's mercy and God's grace. Uh, because, you know, like Paul, you know, we know that, uh, yes, he persecuted the body of Messiah. He put many or oversaw the death of many of the early Messianic Jews. And yes. yeah, we believe God, the, the Lord forgave him. He had the road to Damascus event, but he still carried the memories of that. Mm, that's right. Yeah. And and he still he never forgot it. That's right. Uh, it comes out in one of his letters, yeah. And 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 indeed, you know, so many of us, you know, we've been through some drama, we've been through some traumatic experience. We never forget that. Uh I never I don't forget some of the difficulties that I have gone through. Uh and I remind the Lord, Lord, you know, I, I still need you to intervene in, in my life. And, and yes. uh, no, I, I, I don't earn my salvation, but I do want to make sure that I am the actions that I perform, especially in light of the actions that I performed 
Uh, Mm-hmm. They are honoring of you, and you know you you, you can't take uh, every day for granted. You've got to make the most of every day, uh, because you know. And no, I'm not trying to get all fearful about the end times with COVID and everything else. But this has been an important uh, dry run, as it were. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, of things, things to come, and things that we never thought could happen. I know can happen. Yep. Uh, and so the Lord is getting our attention in, in a way. And I, and I really appreciate this blog that you wrote because it epitomizes so much of, well, all of those things we were putting aside for another day, we, we now have to have these discussions mm-hmm. uh, because we can't, we don't need to go through another Torah cycle this year as the Messianic movement and just continue to avoid this kind of stuff. Uh, yep. Yep. Agreed. I, and I'm glad um, with this post that we could wrestle with these issues. Um, I hope we've presented things uh, in, in, in a good light, um, both for Jonathan as well as people who maybe had some of these questions themselves. Um, stepping back with the Messianic movement, I really want, I think one of the goals, especially in the, in the pro-Torah section of the Messianic movement, one of the goals is we want people, their lives, <laughs> I kind of joke about this, but we want their lives to emulate Paul more than it does RuPaul. <laughs> Meaning we want the lives of people in the Messianic movement to reflect a biblical moral ethic more than a 21st century atheistic and hedonistic ethic. Um, and so I think it's good that we wrestle with his, these issues. As I said, in Jonathan's case, it doesn't mean he's not a believer or that he's not sanctified or anything like that. Um, maybe we disagree about how much of the Torah is relevant and how to apply um, some of these Torah commandments. It's good that we wrestled with them. I'm glad we could talk about them, John. Um, I especially appreciate your your um, wisdom in this regard, given your background, given that you had been to seminary given that you've engaged with scholarship more than uh, I think most of us have. Um, it's been helpful. Well, thank you. And next time on the Messianic walk, and we will yeah. see if we can keep it to, I don't know, five or 10 hours. Um, <laughs> joke. That's a joke. But next time we are going to have a discussion on Romans and, Judah, you are going to put the questions, the issues yeah. that certainly have been on your mind and are on the minds of many people. Uh, you're going to put the questions out there, and we're going to see where the discussion goes. Yeah, I'm thinking of maybe like, I don't know, four to six um, questions that we can kind of dig into in Romans. Some of them that were mentioned in Jonathan's post, um, but that have a lot of relevance for messianic believers. I think it's good for us to wrestle with these and dig a little deeper. Um, today we could maybe touch the surface on some of them, but it'd be good to do some digging in Romans. Uh, I think it'll be, it'll be fun. It'll, it'll uh, be, be good for our spiritual health too. Excellent. One of the reasons why we have shows like this podcasts like this, we try to talk about these issues is, in way too many Messianic congregations, fellowships, Hebrew roots, groups, whatever it is, too many issues are falling through the cracks. Yes. This is the year 2020, and we can't – there are too many things that we do have to discuss. And uh, they're not going to be discussed in this next Torah cycle uh, by 
far too many people in congregational leadership and teaching. Not that they don't have too much to do already. They do. Uh, But it's only in in venues like this where some of these matters are going to be uh, discussed way beyond, okay, just love God and love neighbor, and then you can keep the Torah. No, there are things that, you know, we have to, you know, bring out regarding, okay, there's a history of interpretation mm-hmm. and hopefully provide you a framework and possibilities for you to be considering. That's right. We look forward to getting with you next time on the Messianic Walk show in our discussion of Romans. Until then, be sure to check out Judah Hamango's blog at blog.judagabriel.com. And you can check out my website, Messianic Apologetics, at messianicapologetics.net. Until then, uh, God bless you, especially during this very special and unique fall holiday season. Yeah, yes. Uh, We hope that the Lord reveals things to you that are very important regarding the upcoming year and regarding our collective service for him and his kingdom. Until then, shalom. We'll see you then. Godspeed.